of what I was like at your age. <laughs> uh, and you guys are so far ahead of where I was. Uh, I didn't know the Lord, didn't know the gospel, um, was in my sin, hadn't trusted in Christ, uh, became a Christian when I was 18 years old, when the gospel came to me, it transformed my life. And uh, really, just love being with you guys to see God's grace in your life. I'm so thankful you're hearing the gospel uh, as a teenager in middle school and high school. And uh, Thank you for that. Just really surprised uh, by the grace of God and how good he's been to me. So thank you for that. Uh, big blessing. I will not forget that moment for many years to come. So thank you for that. But we need to transition to our guest speaker. Steve Whitaker is with us. Uh, Steve's going to introduce his voice to you guys a little bit. But I did want you to know this about Steve. So Steve uh, is a pastor in Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. He's a pastor. Uh, he has a full-time job. Uh, he is also a PhD student working on getting his PhD, and on top of all that, he agreed to come and preach to us at this conference and has prepared four amazing messages that I think are going to serve you guys, some of them very practical, that are really going to challenge you, I think, uh, how you apply God's word to your lives, very specific issues. Some of them are just um, more expounding God's word and showing where true joy comes from, so I am full of faith that God is going to use his preaching in these meetings to serve you and care for you. That's why I invited him, because I knew he's going to serve you guys very well. And on top of all your responsibilities to add us, <laughs> um, you didn't have to do that. So I know you do it with joy, but it's a kindness to us that you would agree to come. So thank you for doing that. Can we welcome Mr. Whitaker as he comes to preach to us God's word? You need that? Well, thank you for the warm introduction. It means a lot to me. And I want to briefly introduce you to my boys. I'm here with my sons, Jack and Jude. Many of you have met them. They have told me that they have met many of you, and they are as happy to be here as I am. We have been really looking forward to this. Really looking forward to this. This is my boys' first youth camp. Uh, they've never had a chance to do something like this because we're a small church and we're actually, we live a ways from here. <laughs> so we're, we're really excited to be here. Um, they've never been to one of these, so they don't know what is about to hit them, but I think they're getting a pretty good taste of it so far. Now, I've been looking forward to this since Mike invited me last winter. It was, I think, before Christmas, Mike invited me to come. And I've been looking forward to this for a couple of reasons. Um, first, I was a youth pastor in Virginia before I moved to Kentucky. And I've led retreats like this. And I have seen the Lord work in amazing ways. And I love coming to this. I love the fun that happens. I love the camaraderie and the friendship. I love the yelling and screaming. I'm trying really hard not to, because I got to do this three more times after tonight. So I, I need my voice. But I love all of that. But most of all, I love seeing how the Lord meets people. When God's word is preached, when, when we gather together with faith, the Holy Spirit visits us and meets us. And young people, this is for you. I'm excited to see and hear how God is going to meet you. It's fun to think about. This is a step of faith being here. The Lord loves faith and he rewards faith. That's exciting to think about. I'm also excited, I'm excited to be here because I'm looking forward to getting to know all of you better. Rachel Beekler, a few weeks ago, sent me a list of everybody coming to advance. 
And over the last couple of weeks, I have pulled out that list almost every day and prayed for you all by name. And I don't know which names go with which faces. <laughs> We're going to work on that. And actually, let me just say now, um, there are like 240 of y'all, and there are three of us. I've got, I've got two names down. Pretty much. And um, so please, it, we're just going to have to, like every time I bump into you, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you your name. So I appreciate your patience with that. Steve, Jack, Jude, all of y'all. Great. We're, we got that. Um, so praying for you has been a great joy and it's helped me anticipate how God's going to meet us. Thirdly, I can already tell that this is going to be a lot of fun and I love a good competition. And so for all the clowns, clans, for all the... <laughs> Guys, did I say clowns? Met clans. For all of the clans that are not Fuji. Look, I'm just, I want to apologize right now and say I'm sorry for the beating that you're about to endure. <laughs> all right, Fuji, we're going to do it. So, I didn't come just to insult three quarters of you. I actually am here, been invited here to preach God's word to you. And I'd like to ask you to open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a skinny little book. It's about in the middle. If you open up your Bible, you hit Psalms or Proverbs, you're almost there. Turn a little to the right. If you hit Isaiah or Jeremiah or something that rhymes with those names, turn a little to your left. You'll probably find it. Keep your Bible open because we're going to reference several different verses. And in fact, get used to this. Put the little ribbon there because all four messages that I brought are from the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe not what you expected, but I hope it'll make sense as we go. As you're turning there, I just want us to think about this. Here we are, it's the end of July. And I wonder how many of you, a few months ago, maybe May, perhaps in June, how many of you attended a graduation? Just put your hand up. How many of you actually went to a graduation this summer? How many of you have ever been to a graduation at all? Okay, that's like most of you. Great. You know what happens at graduations. Frankly, graduations are kind of boring. If you are not graduating, you have to sit through speeches with lots of inside jokes that nobody gets except for the graduates. And then you have to endure the reading of many, many names just to get to that one name that you know so that you can cheer at the top of your lungs for 15 seconds. It's a drag. Like, okay. Um, but graduations are kind of inspiring, right? They usually have some theme or some big idea that is meant to summarize the event. They're meant to summarize all the work that has gotten students to that moment and all the excitement that they're about to launch off into. And so graduations usually have some sort of theme, reach for the stars, the sky's the limit, the future is bright, adventure awaits, make your mark. The first day of the rest of your life, the tassel was worth the hassle. I could, there's, we could do this all day, right? There's a lot of these things. It's such a big moment because in that moment, the people who put that graduation together are trying to communicate to these, graduation, to these graduates excuse me, that life is packed with potential. That's the point of a graduation speech anyway, to say, hey, great job. You made it this far. Now use this as a springboard to even bigger and better things. They want you to think, young people. They want you to know that life is stretched out ahead of you. It's a big, empty canvas just waiting to be filled in by you, the master artist. So dream big and then go take hold of those dreams. And this is not a new thing. Way back at my high school graduation in the last century, 
keeping it live in 95. Our valedictorian did not write her own speech, as she was supposed to. Instead, she decided to read to us from that fount of wisdom, the great American sage, Dr. Seuss. She read, I think the whole book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. I'm going to read you a few choice excerpts, and I want you to think about just how this lands on graduates who are about to launch off into the world. Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footy as you. So be sure when you step, step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. And will you succeed? Yes, yes, you will. 98 and three quarter percent guaranteed. Kid, you'll move mountains. The one line doesn't rhyme. But you notice that. Oh, the places you'll go. There is fun to be done. There are points to be scored. There are games to be won. And the magical things you can do with that ball will make you the winningest winner of all. Man, just warms the heart, doesn't it? All of this sounds so great. It sounds so right and so good, so American. There's a problem. And you might have spotted it already. Here's the problem with what I just read to you. Dr. Seuss was wrong. I just said that out loud. Dr. Seuss was wrong. And before you run me out of town as the destroyer of dreams and the great heretic and the evil opposer of all that is good and right about the American dream, hear me out. More importantly, not just me, I hope that you will hear Solomon on this. Maybe you've heard of King Solomon. How many of you have heard of King Solomon? Okay, everybody. That was an easy one. We're starting off easy. What country was he the king of? Anybody? Israel. Yeah, th these are very easy questions. And what number king was he in line? Third. Right, you guys got it. Okay. This is not like Jeopardy. We're not gonna, I'm not going to keep going with this. He is the, was the third king of Israel, the son of David, the richest and wisest king ever to walk on the earth. And did you know that he wrote a book? for graduates and those who are going to be graduates for young people well sort of i mean he didn't have graduation quite the way we do now back then but he wrote a book for young people to equip them to equip you with wisdom to find true joy to find happiness to live life well and some of you who know the bible well might be thinking yeah that book's called proverbs yeah that's right it is actually Okay, Solomon wrote two books. He wrote Proverbs and he wrote Ecclesiastes. So hopefully by now you have found your way to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He wrote this book almost 3,000 years ago. And in this book he refers to himself as the preacher. And this book is a guide for young people to know, number one, how to think about the world. And number two, how to live in the world. And this book is so good, so important, so valuable for young people that God made sure to include it in our Bibles all these centuries later. 
So I'm going to read the first 14 verses. I want you to follow along. Watch the words go by as I read so that you can absorb this message with all of your senses. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have been brought here so that we might see with our eyes, hear with our ears, and set our hearts on all that you show to us. Help us to believe what you say to us through King Solomon that we might live well. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen. It's going to be hard to get invited to deliver a commencement speech at graduation if this is your theme. This is kind of a bleak picture, and maybe you're wondering, why are we starting this retreat here? This is kind of a downer way to begin. And you might think this is a strange way to begin a book. What's the deal with Solomon? Is he depressed? Is he a bitter and cynical old man? Is he kind of morbid? Has he lost his mind? Does he really think life is meaningless? What's going on here? There is a problem here that Solomon wants to fix, and it's a problem that is serious, maybe even deadly, if we don't recognize it and address it. In Ecclesiastes, this book is a kind of shock therapy. It's designed to wake us up and to help us get real about the world we live in and the place we have in it, the role that we're here to play, where we're going, what we're doing, and how we're living our lives. He wants us to see how bad things are so that he can apply the right solution to the problem. And if you're going to take notes, I basically have two points I'm going to make tonight. First, there's a problem. Second, there's a solution. First, there is a problem. Here's the problem. If we are not careful, we will live in a fantasy land where we think that we are capable of attaining our dreams, our aspirations, our ambitions. The graduation gurus, these people who preach these kind of messages at graduations, 
They preach a message that you can achieve whatever you want, that you can grasp your dreams. The world is yours for the taking. You can make your mark. You are good enough and you are smart enough. And all you need to do is dream big enough and work hard enough to fulfill your potential. Sure, you're going to need some perseverance, but if you overcome the bumps and the bruises along the way, you can grab hold of a heaping helping of happiness at the end of the rainbow, along with a pot of gold, a pet unicorn, a fast car, a huge house, and an Instagram account stuffed with pictures of tasty meals. It's all out there waiting for you. Those valedictorians want to tell you that happiness is yours for the taking. Satisfaction is waiting for you to seize. Pleasure will get you what you desire. So grab hold of your dreams. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Go get them, tiger. This is nonsense. Solomon just told us so. Solomon, in fact, calls it vanity. Vanity of vanity, he says. And in case you didn't catch it, he says it again. Vanity of vanities. And in case you didn't catch that, he says it again. All is vanity. So to understand what's going on here, we need to know what Solomon means by vanity. It's a word that occurs a bunch of times in Ecclesiastes, but it's not a word we use a whole lot else. And unless we're talking about somebody that likes to look at a mirror quite often. Sometimes some Bibles will translate this word something like meaningless or futility. And if those words are in your Bible, that's okay, but I don't think it's the most helpful way to translate it. When this word is misunderstood, it leaves some people thinking that Solomon is depressed or despairing, that he's cynical and bitter, that he thinks, well, life just has no more meaning for me. So meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. That's not the best way to think of it. It helps to understand that the phrase vanity of vanities is a play on words. It's an illustration. It's an example. The word for vanity is also one of the words the Hebrew language uses for breath. It's not the only word for breath, and it's only for a certain part of breathing. It doesn't refer to the inhale, to the breath of life. Instead, it refers to the exhale. It refers to the fog on a mirror. It refers to the little puff of cloud you see on a cold winter's morning. It's an image of a vapor or a fog or a mist. My wife's parents live on a lake, and we spent a good, time, good bit of time there in the summer. There are a lot of things I love about the lake house. It is incredibly relaxing and a lot of fun. But one of my favorite things is waking up early enough to watch the sunrise. Many mornings... There is a mist that hovers just above the water. It is, it is fascinating to watch. Sometimes it sits there as still as it can be. Other times it blows and swirls and kind of drifts about on these breezes. I've gone for early morning swims just to get out among it. I want to see it up close. And I've discovered something. You can't catch it. You can't collect it. You can't store it up. I didn't bring a bottle of it with me. That mist is there, and then it's gone. Not long after the sun rises, it just disappears. I don't know where it went. I don't even know where it came from. And Solomon says that's a little bit about what life is like. Vanity of vanities. Mist of mists. You can't control it. You can't comprehend it. You can't manage it. You can't store it up. He says it's like striving after the wind. Another great illustration. Have you ever tried to collect an armful of the wind? 
Have you ever tried to stop the wind in its tracks and maybe funnel it over into your yard? Maybe you've seen the wind on a hot summer day up r- rustling the leaves and the treetops. You think, man, it's so hot down here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bring it on down. You can't do that. Solomon's saying, good luck. It doesn't work that way. And in this book, he's going to tell us over and over and over again by using pictures like morning mists and winds blowing in the tops of trees that we cannot grasp what we hope to gain by striving for what this world has to offer. So folks, because this is a harsh reality, but it's better to learn this now than later. The harsh reality of living in this world is that so much of what we want is just out of reach. It's so close. And we so often think, oh, if only, if only I could just get a little further with this. The happiness, the contentment, the goals and the dreams that you have, do they feel, maybe you feel this already. You might feel already like, man, it is just beyond my fingertips, almost there. And then even when you think you finally got something that you want, you're so worried about losing it because maybe you've seen already that those things you wanted so badly can disappear in an instant. Maybe you finally got invited to that party that you were hoping to go to and you got there and none of the cool kids were there. You finally make a new friend, somebody who really gets you, somebody you can have an inside joke with and they move. Maybe you work and you save and you buy a new phone. You drop it and break the screen. <laughs> Been there. You think, oh, if I could just get a new outfit, a new hairstyle, a new car, then I could get some attention that I would like. Maybe you think, when I get to college, that's when the fun will start. Maybe you pass one test, and then you've got to write a paper. You finally turn in that paper, there's a group project. You finally knock out that group project, it's another test. When does it end? Just over and over, round and round. That's what he says in verses 4 through 8. He's just saying, look, this life, it's just... People keep doing the same thing day after day. Look at the world. This is the way it works. The sun goes up. It comes down. One generation is born, lives, dies. The next generation born, lives, dies. The next generation born, lives, dies. Streams just run to the sea. They are always moving. And that ocean is never full. And we strive and we strive. And it's always just whatever your dream. It's just right there. It's so close. And so Solomon asked this question in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the question that no one ever stops to ask at a graduation. I have never heard a question even remotely like this at a great graduation. Friends, you're going to, hey, graduates, congratulations. You got the cap, you got the gown, you got the diploma, you're going to walk out of here. What are you really going to get for all that work you're going to do in the next few decades? Nobody shoots straight with that stuff. And there's two truths that Solomon wants every graduate, every young person, every person who's eventually going to graduate. He wants all of us to think about. It's right in here. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? First, he says, look, trying to go the places you'll go is toil. I want to serve you by preparing you for this. You're going to work. You're going to go to college, whatever. You're going to go to college, then work. You're going to find life is toil. Life is hard work. Trying to achieve your goals and attain your dreams is toil. But that little word toil means more than hard work. It's not just hard work. 
not just that you're going to have to work long hours, that your boss isn't going to notice your efforts. It doesn't mean pull yourself up by the bootstraps, climb every mountain, ford every stream. It's not just the obstacle is the way kind of stick to The word also means trouble and suffering. They don't tell you that at graduation. Nobody hands you a nice pen with a note that says, life's tough, get a helmet. <laughs> they should. Solomon would have. And the word also reminds us that we live in a fallen world. That word toil, the first time that word toil appears in your Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. You remember what happened in that chapter? It's a chapter right after Adam and Eve sinned, and God then lays out curses, punishment for sin. And He tells Adam, it is by toil and the sweat of your brow that the land will bring forth its fruit. And the Word reminds us that this world, though beautiful, beautiful in many ways, it is cursed because of sin. And so frustration is the result of the fall. And this is why Solomon in, in verse 13 calls it an unhappy business. This life, this life that's stretched out before you, he calls it an unhappy business. So he asks, what do we gain by all this? It's a good question. And it's an important question. And it's one that we need to ask, and it's one that nobody asks at graduation. And here is a guy who has tried everything. Solomon was the richest man, possibly in the history of the world. He has bought every toy. He has pursued every pleasure, tried every hobby. He has vacationed in the best resorts, eaten at the finest restaurants, driven the fastest chariots, built monuments and gardens and parks. He is a king and a diplomat. He had the best education and wisdom from God beyond all others. And yet he asks, what do I gain from all of this? Well, it's a good question. The other day, I pulled up behind a car at a stoplight, and it actually had one of these bumper stickers that says, he who has the most toys wins. This is like a legendary bumper sticker that I thought lived in some sort of mythical land. I didn't think people would be like, I don't know, materialistic enough or crass enough to actually put that on a bumper sticker, but there it was. And we were in traffic. I tried so hard to pull even with this guy. I just wanted to see him. Like, who, who thinks like this? What does he look like? And then I wanted to ask him, maybe we'd pull up at a red light, like, wins what? Wins what? You amass all this stuff and then you're dead. And you just give it to the next guy. Nice car, pal. When's what? Well, all those toys that we're after, all the experiences, all the pleasures that we desire, Solomon would say, what is the use of all that toil to get it? Because we're all going to die. And that will be the end of it. I use a phrase around the house often. <laughs> I use this with my kids. I use this with people at church. Look, we're all going to be dead soon. <laughs> How to win friends and influence people, right? Um, we're all going to be dead soon. I'm 42 years old. So statistically, I'm a little over halfway, Lord willing. Uh, I might slip and fall off one of those cliffs tomorrow. I, I might have a lot less than 40-something years. 
But either way, when I die, then what? All this stuff that I've been working so hard for, then what? There's a pastor named David Gibson. He puts it like this. He said, this is what's at stake in the question at the end of chapter 3. At the end of my life, what will the surplus be? What, what will I leave behind that will count as a lasting monument to my effort? The preacher provides the answer by painting an incredibly stark picture. He sketches humankind's place on the canvas of the entire universe to show in graphic terms just how and why there is nothing to be gained. I leave only one thing behind. That's the earth I used to live on, remaining right where it was when I first arrived. Only now it spins without me. So we have these, these hopes and dreams, and, and Solomon says, uh, look, what are you doing? Why is that the thing you're after? Because what are you going to do with it if you catch that dream? Sooner or later, you're going to die, and that'll be that. Does this shake you up a little bit? Like, honestly, it shakes me up. When I read Ecclesiastes, I'm, I'm sobered by this. And I, I realize some of you are shaken up by this. Some of you are wondering, like, wow, who invited Johnny Raincloud here? <laughs> well, Mike Pluniak did. But actually, I've got a bit of sunshine for you, too. Because it turns out that seeing the problem is the first step in understanding and applying the solution. If we can see the futility, that the... the, the the frustration that there is in, in going for the gusto and pursuing our dreams, actually we will be saved, rescued from a lifetime of wasted effort. So if you're taking notes, second point, the fix. There's a problem. We talked about that. Solomon has tried to show us what that is. Second point, there's a fix. And here is the fix that Solomon has to offer. If we will give up this graduation mentality and stop striving for all the gain that we can get, we can actually learn to enjoy the gifts that God has given us here and now. Basically, if I could sum it, summarize it in like one sentence, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is this. If you want to enjoy the good life now, do good and enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Do good and enjoy the gifts that God has given us. So, next page, hopefully in your Bible, Ecclesiastes 2. I want to read verses 24 through 26. I'm skipping over, if you just look at even the section headings that, that run through here, you'll see Solomon, just he keeps hammering a nail. And you can see he is not letting up on this message that there is vanity out there. And so the section headings in my Bible go, all is vanity, the vanity of wisdom, the vanity of self-indulgence, the vanity of toil. There's a time for everything in a God-given task. That's good. Oh, then we're back to the evil under the sun. Fear God, the contrast of wisdom and folly. It's like, man, he just keeps beating on this nail. But embedded throughout the book are like these little bursts of sunshine. He comes up for air. So hang on, there are, there's a vision of something here more wonderful, more powerful, maybe than we've ever realized. So chapter 2, verse 24, Solomon says, Now, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. At first, it seems like he's just saying the same thing. He, say, he starts, there's nothing better than a person should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But then did you notice there were some phrases here that were very different than what we heard in chapter 1. He says, enjoyment. It's not just a vapor or a mirage. He says, no, no. Enjoyment is from the hand of God. Apart from Him, who can have enjoyment? To the one who pleases Him, God has given knowledge and joy. And I hope here, listen, I hope, I hope you can spot the difference between Dr. Seuss and King Solomon. First, the main character is different. Man, Dr. Seuss loved the word you. Oh, you, you can do this. You are going to do that. You got, you got a head full of brains. You got feet in your shoes. You can do it. And Solomon's like, no, no, no. Different main character. Shift the focus a little bit here. The actor in King Solomon's play is not you and me, it's God. The point of Ecclesiastes is, is that if there is any goodness in the world, any pleasure or joy or satisfaction in this world, we didn't get it for ourselves. God gave it. God is a giver. God is a giver. God gives gifts. I thought about this phrase just a bunch of times driving down here. The scenery was beautiful. And we made great time in a car with internal combustion engine. There's little tiny explosions going on every second propelling us down the road. Really smooth ride on this nice asphalt highway. We stopped for lunch and we got Dairy Queen. Burgers and blizzards. Is God a giver or what? Right? We got here and within 15 seconds, I'm meeting people and we're laughing. And then we walk out here. There's this, I get this tour of the place and there's this stunning view. We come in here and we're singing these rich songs and there's, there's, there's musical instruments and there's technology, the speakers that are... This, we have a Bible. I have a phone that is timing, timing how long I've been preaching. There's, there are amazing gifts all around us. We're going to sleep tonight. God is a giver. We're going to wake up in the morning because God is a giver. There will be a sunrise tomorrow. God is a giver. We're going to enjoy breakfast tomorrow because God is a giver. We're going to come back in here. We're going to sing. We're going to play games. Fuji's going to win. God is a giver. <laughs> so God, the main character here is God. Don't believe the graduation speech that the main character is you. God is a giver. Second, enjoyment is found by focusing on what God gives, not on what you can go get. Enjoyment, let me say it again, because this might be the most profound and the most difficult point of Ecclesiastes to grasp. Enjoyment is found by focusing on what God gives, not what you can go get. The graduation gurus want to invite you to join the chase, to strive for your dreams, go for the gusto, all of that stuff. For these people, everything and everyone here and now is just a stepping stone to greater glory. 
If you leave, live out this go grab your dreams mentality, then all you do is chase a rainbow. And everything here is just meant to propel you on to the next thing. There is no stopping to enjoy what is here. Well, enjoyment will come later, they think. When you accomplish your dreams, you'll, you'll get that then. They're always inviting you to, to join in some breathless race of impatience, always reaching up and reaching out for the next best thing. Listen, it's a miserable way to live. And Solomon is inviting us to a very different approach. He says, look, it, it, it's good, actually. It is good to have dreams and to have goals, to have ambitions and aspirations. Good. Do that. But those haven't arrived yet. And if your only focus and your only hope is on the stuff that's out there, somewhere in the future, somewhere off in the distance, you're going to miss all that God has given you to enjoy right here and right now. So the graduation mindset sees school as a means to an end. You have to endure it so you can get a good job. And then you'll get a good job, but you'll be, sad, you'll be saddled with a, a frustrating commute and irritating coworkers and an incompetent boss. You're going to work long hours at a job you don't like so, so that one day you can eventually retire to a little patio home on the 14th fairway of some golf course somewhere. But you won't be able to enjoy that because the economy is shaky and you've got to keep an eye on your accounts to make sure that you've got enough money left for long-term medical care should you ever need it. It's not living. The Lord is a giver, and He gives life to be lived. Solomon says there is a better way. Sure, school is difficult, but there are many gifts in it if we have eyes to see them. Now listen, I know this is going to be a tough audience for this, what I'm about to say. Okay, but I thought, let's just start with the hard one. All right, school is a gift. God is a giver. School is a gift. Easy to say in the middle of summer, right? Learning is a gift. You know more this summer than you did last summer, and that's a gift to be enjoyed. There's the satisfaction of knowing you've done your best to pass a test or write a paper or learn a language or master an instrument. God intends for you to enjoy that. This is a lesson I wish I had learned earlier. Somewhere along the way, in college, I learned to enjoy learning. And I, I just, I wish I had this magic power to impart this to you because you have a bunch of learning left in front of you. Um, but there's a way to, to learn to enjoy that. But it's not just learning. Sports teams can get so fixated on getting the win or advancing to the playoffs, they miss the simple pleasure of having legs and lungs to run and using them to play. That's not a gift everyone gets to enjoy often point out to my children as we're making our way through the world, if we meet somebody in a wheelchair, some kind of physical disability, just say, guys, look at that. Why aren't we all like that? Why has God given us the ability to run, to play? Parents, we can create schedules that are so crammed with activities because we want to help our kid fill out a good college application. We've lost our appetite for leisurely laughter around the dinner table. There are pleasures all around us to enjoy. My kids, I think, would tell you that I'm a noisy eater. Now, not that I chew with my mouth open. I don't. I try not to. Anyway, if I do, if you catch me, tell me. I, I'm open to that. But I express my, my love of food loudly. 
Mmm, I love to eat. I love flavor. I love texture. I love to think about why something is good. I love to think about what is it about this combination of smells and tastes? What is it about, I don't know, what is it about a hamburger? The heat of the patty and the melted cheese and the cool lettuce and tomato that's in there and the ketchup and mustard squirting out the side and the bread is just fluffy enough. It's perfect. They're going to serve them at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I know it. (laughs) God has given us these things to enjoy. And Solomon wants us to see moments like this that are all around us and to enjoy them. Over and over, he says things like this in chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. You don't have to to turn there. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them (laughs) and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. God is a giver. I love that phrase in there. And the power to enjoy them. That is a phrase worth taking home. The power to enjoy them. God has given you gifts and the power to enjoy them. This world presents before you a rat race, a, a, like a hamster on a wheel. You are going to run like crazy, and you're never going to get the food unless you stop Think, and see that God has given us gifts. It's a pastor named Doug Wilson. He says, for those who fear him, he gives the gift of being able to actually enjoy this great big marching band of futility, the tubas of vanity bringing up the rear. I don't appreciate that phrase so much because I played tuba in high school. (laughs) Moving on. God gives to a wise man the gift of watching with a pious and grateful chuckle one thing after another. All things considered, the furious activity of this world is about as meaningful as the halftime frenzy at the Super Bowl. But a wise man can sit here and enjoy himself. This is the gift of God. The wise will notice how this point is hammered home again and again. Slowly it dawns on a man, this is really a book of profound optimism. This is a happy book. It doesn't start out sounding that way. But if we have eyes and ears and hearts of faith, we'll find it is. So how do we get there? How do we, how do we get from vanity of vanities, all is vanity, to God has given gifts and the power to enjoy them? Well, it takes practice. But more than that, it takes a changed heart. The only way to get here, to recognize that all of life is a gift, begins with having the greatest gift of all. That is a Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said that His mission was to rescue sinners. And that includes giving those He came to save the capacity for joy and meaning and satisfaction. So, let's think about this carefully. Jesus saves sinners. When we talk about salvation, what salvation is, is that you and I deserve eternal punishment for our sins. Our sins are that serious. Our rebellion against God when we flaunt our independence and our pride, when we disobey our parents, when we tell lies and think nobody, nobody knows or nobody cares, we're getting away with it. God said, no, no, he sees, he cares. 
And he says, all of that, though it may not seem bad to us in the moment, it's just one little sin. I mean, come on. God says, no, no. That deserves punishment. It deserves wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus forgives sinners. It says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now friends, there is no better news. There is nothing you will ever hear in this world that is better than that news that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be made right with God. There is no greater need that has been, fi- has been filled on your behalf than that one. And many of you know that already. You've tasted it. You put your faith in that message. And you sit here today as Christians and something inside of you is like, yes, that's right. I love that news. And some of you are like, hmm. Yeah, I've heard that before. It's another retreat. Let's go play some games. And if that's you, the Lord is speaking to you. Because He says, you know what else I've not given you? I'm not given you forgiveness of your sins, and I've not given you the power to enjoy the gifts that I've given to you. And so if you think that you can have the gifts that God has given, and you can have enjoyment in them without first receiving Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, Solomon would say, no, no, no. That's just not how it works. For you, that quest for enjoyment and happiness, satisfaction, it's going to be like trying to bottle up the wind in your backyard. It's going to be a really frustrating process, and you're going to look awfully silly doing it. But... For those of you who are Christians, those of you who are not, listen, you, you can be. You can tonight. You can tonight, come, you can tonight come to Jesus with faith and repentance and say to him, Father in heaven, I have sinned. I have broken your laws and your commandments. And I have tried to be the king of my own life. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died for sinners like me. Talk to God. Talk to your parents. Respond with faith and repentance. And you can have the gifts and the power to enjoy them. Why would we want to go like three more days of this without, without having that? You're going to miss all kinds of great pleasure and enjoyment if you don't have that. For those of us who have come to Jesus with faith and repentance, Jesus gives you not only Part of his mission is to forgive sins. I mean, that, that, is, that, is, that is the headline. That's the main thing. He forgives your sins. But then also gives us the power to enjoy the gifts that he has given us. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I think he's referring to eternal life, but it could be more than that. In John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If any of you have an ESV study Bible, here's what it says about John 10.10. It says, Jesus calls his followers not to a dour, lifeless, miserable existence that squashes human potential, but to a rich, full, joyful life, one overflowing with meaningful activities under the personal favor and blessing of God and in continual fellowship with his people. God gives gifts and the power to enjoy them.
And it's only those who have Jesus who can truly experience this life as a gift and find real and lasting enjoyment. Because in Jesus, we hear the gospel. And once we see that this is a gift, it's only natural that then we begin to receive all the other gifts He's given us and enjoy them. Last quote I'm going to give you. James Russell Miller, a Presbyterian pastor 125 years ago, said, summing all up in one, only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only He can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calmness. Only He can purify that sinful fountain within us or our corrupt nature and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. Such a life grows brighter, even to its close. Jesus Christ can make any life truly beautiful and truly happy. When He does, He gives us the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. And then He gives us, gives us many, many gifts and the ability to enjoy them. So let's pray and ask Him to help us receive those gifts and enjoy them. Father in heaven, it is a gift that we can call You Father. It is a gift that we can pray. It is a gift that we can hear Your Word speak to us from so many thousands of years ago right here in our situation, in our lives, right here on the side of a mountain outside of Dayton, Tennessee. Here You are speaking to us. And for that, we give You thanks. We receive the gifts that You have given us. The gifts that we already have experienced today and will experience again we, we receive the gift of, of sunrise and waking with breath in our lungs, of filling our bellies with food, the gift of fellowship and laughter together, the gift of relationships, the gift of speaking and hearing one another, of serving one another. Father, we want to know these gifts better. We want to live in a way that is grateful, that receives these gifts as from You. We want to find pleasure in them, knowing that it pleases You when we receive them from Your hand. So Father, help us to do that. We pray these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus, who we love with all our hearts. Amen.